series on growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, we spent the first week looking at growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and then we spent uh, the second week looking at growing in grace from the point of our receiving God's grace, both in salvation when we first trusted Christ, and also the grace to live every day. God is showing grace to his children every day, and we need it, and we appreciate it. And some people have a hard time forgiving themselves for sins. I can't believe, I knew better. How many of you have ever done something you knew better, you did it anyway? Yeah, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote about that in Romans 7. He said, I know better. I don't want to do it, and I end up doing it. There's a time we struggle because we still live in the flesh. Jesus never sinned, even though he was in the flesh, because his spirit was always 100% connected with the Father. We're not always 100%. Sometimes we're not even close to 100%. But God still shows grace, and we need to receive his grace. And sometimes people allow a sin, a failure to sidetrack them, and they stop serving the Lord because they failed God so badly. No, God can forgive that sin, and you can go on it. You may have to serve in a different way, a different capacity. There's certain sins the Bible describes that deacons and pastors, if they've done certain things, they can't serve as a deacon or a pastor anymore or ever again. And, and okay, but they could still serve God in some way somewhere, right? God is gracious. And then last week we looked at showing his grace toward other people, and we looked at a particular people group. Who was that? Believers. Showing his grace to other believers. I know it's an awkwardly worded question. I could tell that when everybody's eyes glaze over, and they're afraid, like, do not get eye contact with the preacher right now. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, to believers. But see, there's a spiritual obligation we have in, this is part two of growing in grace and showing grace to others. And that is that we have to show grace to non-believers, to what the Bible calls those that are without, those who are outside, those who are not part of God's family. I like to refer to them as people who have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Because from our perspective, every person on the planet has that opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And so we look at people as those who have not yet trusted Christ as Savior. And so we just read a little bit ago uh, on the screen Colossians chapter 4. I want you to turn there, and we're going to look at some other passages of Scripture too. And I I want you to turn because I want you to see it in the Scripture. And then the reason I'm sitting on a stool is because my leg works better this way today. And the reason I have an empty stool over here, I want you to picture an unsaved person on that stool. Somebody who's outside the family of God. Somebody who's not in here, connected, beloved, as the Scripture says, one of the beloved, those who are saved and and committed to Christ, but they're sitting on that stool uh, is somebody who is not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, who has not yet received Christ as their Savior, 
who is not yet part of the family, but has the full potential to become. You see, we read in Scripture, and there was a guy named Peter sitting on this stool. He's part of the beloved. And there was a guy named Saul sitting on that stool. And nobody ever thought Peter and eventually Paul, Saul's name changed to Paul, that those two would eventually work together for the cause of Christ. And they would connect with each other. And that Peter, in his epistle, would praise that guy sitting over there. We, we didn't anticipate that. Nobody anticipated that. In fact, when Saul first became a believer, nobody believed him. They thought he was being a believer so he could sneak in and spy out and catch them. Do you know they do this in other countries where Christianity is illegal? Uh, we were told when we first uh, went to Cuba uh, that they would put people in the service who would be spies for the communist government. And so you had to be careful when people came up to you and started criticizing the government program in Cuba. You had to be careful not to join in with them because it could be a spy. And then as soon as you start joining them criticizing the government, they arrest you and pull your visa and you're stuck in Cuba. And so they, they, they could do stuff like that. And they do stuff like that today. Chinese home churches, they have problems sometimes. People infiltrate, pretend to be a believer, and then they find out who all the believers are so they can be arrested. That happens in the Middle East. Uh, and so they were afraid that's what was going on with Saul, but it wasn't. His life was genuinely transformed by Christ. And every person who ever sat on that stool has that potential. From that sweet little old lady down the block to Adolf Hitler, they had the potential to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Not everybody does, right? And some of the people we love haven't. And that's hard. Okay, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are without toward those who are outside the family of faith. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. So what's the first obligation you have? Wisdom. He doesn't say walk in criticism toward, does he? He doesn't say seek to expose. No. Walk in wisdom toward them that are out. Redeeming the time. There's a phrase that be, has become popular in our culture. Carpe diem. And it really means seize the day. But it, we use it to mean like seize the moment. You know? Carpe de moment just doesn't sound quite as good as carpe diem. So, so carpe diem, seize the day. So redeeming the time means you're dealing with that unsaved person, that person who has not yet trusted Christ. Seize the opportunities. Does this mean you should walk up to somebody and smack them with your family Bible so they really feel it and, and then you can tell them God loves them and if they respond to God's love, you won't hit them again? No, that's not the way to do it. Does this mean that you have to identify and say, you know, whatever sin you're doing, it's okay. God loves you. Are there churches doing that in the world today? Yes. Is God pleased? 
No. God wants us to become like Christ, conformable, not comfortable. So redeeming the time, seizing the opportunity. And what's the next thing he talks about? Walk in wisdom toward those that are, who are outside or without. Redeeming the time, let what? Wait, wait, what's that first word? Your. See, we're really, we're really concerned about their speech, right? There's a candidate for president of the United States who's openly said he's against churches. Oh, we care a lot about their speech. But he said, let your speech. You know what? You can't control what comes out of the mouth of that person over there. But God fully expects you to control what comes out of your mouth. That thing in the lower part of your face, God expects you to be in control of that. Now, how many of you as a parent wished you could have stopped your kid's mouth before they said something embarrassing, right? We've been there, right? You can't do that. You can't stop anybody else's mouth. And I can remember being someplace and somebody asking me a question, and I started to answer them, and I looked to see my mom, and she had this horrified look on her face because she was pretty sure what I was going to say was not going to be appropriate. And and I stopped, and I, Mom, are you okay? And we got beyond it. She still loved me. She's in heaven now, and she still loves me. Let your speech, then what does he say? Let your speech always be with grace. If you notice, the B is in italics there. Unless it's quoting from the Old Testament, in the New King James, one of the words in italics, it's added by the translators to help you understand. So it's actually like, your speech always with grace. It's very emphatic. You know, we had a friend from West Virginia. She used to say, Shut up of your face, child. God says every time you open your mouth, every time you open your mouth, be gracious. Be gracious. Let your speech always, not just most of the time, always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. See, no people, people are not cookie cutters, are they? Everybody's different. And you know what Paul did when he talked to soldiers? He used language the soldiers could understand. When he talked to the business people, he used language they could understand. When he talked to the ladies by the riverside, he used language they could understand. God spoke in ways that people could understand. And that's what you need to do. You need to speak in a way they can understand. We have some people who are really gifted at working with young kids. In fact, Ben's one of them. Ben works uh, with young kids in our Good News Club. He's worked with young kids in our Awana Club. And, you know, we say, hey, we need a man to work in Cubbies or Sparks. Tim Pinnock and I start to break out in hives, right? And Tim wants to work with those uh, older elementary age kids, third, fourth, and fifth graders. He can do it fantastic job with them. I, I prefer to work with the middle school kids. Tim also works with the high school kids, and Tim and Clarinda, they do a great job there. But some people are just really gifted at working with those young little kids. In fact, Hunter, aren't you working in Cubbies? Hunter and Jim Ricosi 
both work in cubbies, and they both do a good job with those cubbies. It's a giftedness. <laughs> I don't have it, but but look, let your speech be appropriate toward the hearer. One of the things you're supposed to do if you're preaching or teaching or speaking somewhere, you're supposed to think about the audience. You're supposed to take the message that you have from God or from your heart, depending on whether it's a church setting or not, and then convey it in a way that the audience can hear and understand. And so when you're dealing with somebody who's unsaved, you have to think not just about what does God's Word say, but how do I express what God's Word says to that person? What's your number one duty toward that person? All right, I'll give you a hint. Ready? Jesus said there's two great commandments. What was the first one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one is just like the first one. What's that? Love your neighbor as yourself. All right, what's your primary responsibility toward that person on that stool? Show God's love. That's why we say our purpose is to show God's love and share his truth as we worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. Show love. That's your number one responsibility to anybody. Now, it doesn't say show total acceptance, does it? No. There are parents who, in love, have disciplined their children. Because that's what a loving parent does. In fact, Hebrews 12 says that's what God does when he loves his kids. He disciplines his kids, just like a loving parent would discipline a wayward child. So showing love does not mean showing total acceptance. In our culture, they view if you love, you have to show total acceptance. And that's just not true. That's not true in life. I mean, let's pick on Tim and Missy for a moment here. Missy, do you love Tim? Yeah, always. Do you show total acceptance no matter anything he ever does? <laughs> See, honestly, if, even in a wonderful marriage, which hopefully they have one, I think so. It better be. I mean, I led the service for them to get married. It better be good. All right, so in their wedding, I mean, in their marriage, there's going to be issues. There are going to be times when they talk about things and they might look at each other and wonder if they're from the same planet. Somebody wrote a book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Sometimes it seems like we're from different planets. But your number one obligation, show love toward that person. And the only person you and I can show total acceptance with, Jesus. Everybody else there's going to be an issue somewhere someday. Like when you can't get out of your chair and they laugh at you on the inside but not on the outside. <laughs> There's going to be some issue somewhere someday. And by the way, that wasn't Pat. That was Georgia who did that laughing with that not out loud. Okay? So what does a lost person look like from a biblical perspective? Yes, guilty is true. But let's look at some other characteristics that all show up in Scripture. And you don't have to turn to these, but maybe you know the verse. Romans 5, 6, when we were yet no, without strength. 
We were yet without strength. What does a lost person look like in the eyes of God? Without strength, Christ died for us. When we were without strength, Christ died for us. An unbelieving person is without strength. Uh, Romans 10.14 says an unbelieving person is without knowledge. How shall they hear without a teacher? They don't know. They're without knowledge. So you have somebody who's without strength and without knowledge. All right, let's just stop there for just a moment. How does the average believer look at that person? You need to do this. You need to stop that. You're on your way to hell. Okay, maybe you're not saying that out loud, but you may be thinking that. But what we need to look is if you see something who, somebody who is without strength and without knowledge, you step up and help, right? You, you uplift if they've fallen down and can't get up. You help them. You don't criticize them. You don't stand there and say, well, it's no wonder you fell down wearing those shoes. You need to get some nice rock ports like me. No. You know what? They are without strength and without knowledge. There's a third way that's described, and I do want you to turn to this. Uh, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll get there. I turned to Philippians chapter 2 and thought, huh? (laughs) All right. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at several verses in this chapter. The first one is verse 12. I want you to see a phrase that's used here. Ephesians 2 and verse 12 says that at that time you were without Christ. So that's an unsaved person person who's not yet received Christ. You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, they're without strength. They're without knowledge. They're without hope. We we have lots of hope, don't we? Even on our worst days, on our worst days, we live better than most of the world. When we're really struggling struggling financially and you're feeling poor, you need to remember that if you make more than $20,000 a year, you're in the top 5% of people in the world. You don't feel like you're in the top 5%, but you are. And so they're without hope. You know... How many of you have ever been really hungry? I mean, really, really hungry. What do you do when you're really, really hungry? You open the fridge, you go to the pantry, you go to fast food or a restaurant nearby. There are people in the world who don't have a fridge, who don't have a pantry, who don't have restaurants nearby. When they get really, really hungry, they go to bed hungry. They're without hope. They're without strength. They're without knowledge. They're without hope. 
And, and you know, another verse in this passage, and I'll, we'll read it in just a moment. It says, people who have not yet trusted Christ, they are without strength, they are without knowledge, they are without hope, without exception. Every person who has not yet trusted Christ meets those criteria. You, before you trusted Christ, you met those criteria. Without strength, without uh, hope, without knowledge, without exception. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 1. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So where were you before Christ? Dead in trespasses and sins. That's right. You were dead. In which you once walked, you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, um, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all, see that word, all, once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. Without exception, every person has sat on that stool at some point in their life. Every person has been not yet part of the family of God, not yet trusting Christ as Savior. Every person has been a child of disobedience. Every person has been influenced by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Every person has been there. Now, what happens when you get saved? You, you kind of clean up your act a little bit. You get saved. You start serving God. Some of the sins you used to do, you don't do anymore. You don't. And who's the worst person for a smoker to be around? Well, <laughs> for the smoker's sake, who's the first person for, worst person for a smoker to be around? For the smoker's sake. An ex-smoker, a former smoker. Uh, Benjamin was absolutely right, an asthmatic. <laughs> I see the person lighten up and I run the other way, you know. But, but a smoker, man, if you are still smoking and you get harassed by people who quit and they'll dog you and they'll fuss at you and they'll complain to you. And sometimes the worst person for a sinner to be around is a former sinner, a child of God. Because we critique their failures instead of showing them love. We all were in that seat. So when you're thinking about other people and thinking about unsaved, you've got to remember, you sat there. You were there. And so you should be stirred with compassion toward them. Because they are without strength, without knowledge, without hope, and without, um, without exception. Every one of us was once there. I want you to turn to Second Timothy.
All right, everybody turn to 2 Timothy except Tim Panic. Tim, you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, okay? Everybody else, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look down in verse 23. But avoid foolish and ignorance disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Some believers get in arguments with each other or arguments with unsaved people, and that doesn't help anything. You show love, present truth. If they disagree, you let them go, like Jesus did with the rich young ruler. He let them go. But you show love and, and share truth. Then he says in verse 24, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. A, a qualification for a pastor is he can't be an argumentative, angry person. It's a, it disqualifies somebody from serving as a pastor. So if you were that way or are that way and you want to be a pastor someday, you've got to get over it. Okay? Verse 24, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. You don't leave them in their sinfulness. You correct them with the Word of God. Correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Every person on that stool has been taken captive by Satan to do his will. When Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about sharing the, the seed, and some seed fell by the wayside, and Satan snatched it out. When the Word of God started to take root in their hearts, Satan would snatch it out. They are victims of the enemy. And they don't have the strength or the knowledge or the capacity to move beyond that without help. Thankfully, we can be the person who brings help. All right, um, Tim, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. Could you read that real loudly, please? So Satan can give the appearance of an angel of light. There's a guy here in Casa Grande. I had witnessed to him. He had kind of rejected it. And then he came up to me one day all excited. And he said, Terry, Terry, I want you to know, I now believe in Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, this is great. And then I said, what made that happen? He said, you know, I was in the hospital and, and I had a heart attack and an angel came to me and spoke in my hospital room and he said, Jesus is one of God's prophets like Buddha and Muhammad and, and we should believe and trust in the words that Jesus said. You know what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, what happened in that situation with that friend of mine, an angel, a demon, pretending to be an angel of light, gave him revelation that helped him, and he felt comforted and strengthened by that revelation, even though it was false. And so we get really frustrated at people like that. Don't non-believers believe some of the craziest things in the world? I mean, yeah, sometimes believers do too. But there's some really crazy things out there, aren't there? 
You know, I read an article recently that said there's dozens of genders. I read the article. It, it didn't help me understand it. It didn't make sense at all. And, and yet they believe that because Satan's blinded their hearts. They've been taken captive. Now, in the Geneva Convention... If you have somebody who has been taken captive and you in charge of that prisoner, what are you supposed to do? Treat them humanely. You got to give them food. You got to give them water. You can leave them in a cell, but you got to give them food. You got to give them water. You got to treat them humanely if they're a prisoner of war. Even the world recognizes that's how you should treat the, the victims. And if somebody's been attacked by somebody else, police show up on the scene. There's a person who assaulted somebody. The person who's assaulted, they're on the ground, they're bleeding, they got a broken arm, they're in pain. Do the cops cuff that person and stuff them in the cop car? Okay, honestly, sometimes they make mistakes, okay? But should they do that? No! They should arrest the guy who was assaulting and give aid to the person who's injured. So what's our primary responsibility toward people on that stool in that seat? Show love. Give help. They're captive by the enemy. They need to know the truth of God's word. But you see, most people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And when you show love, you get the opportunity to then share truth. We see that happening in the life of Christ. We see that happening in our world today. So let me give some examples for us to work with, okay? In this stool, you have somebody who's transgender. They believe they should have been born a different person. There's a gender dysphoria. It's a mental condition that causes people to think they were born the wrong gender. Okay, what does the truth of God's word say? That God created them male and female. God made that, right? What if you took a sample of that person's blood and ran a DNA test? Would that DNA test show whether they were male or female? Yes, it's, it's encoded in the chemistry of who you are. So, if you're a man sitting on that stool thinking you should be a woman, or you're a woman sitting there thinking you should be a man, your DNA says otherwise, and God's Word says otherwise. So what should you do? Show love. Share truth. See, we can't beat people up with the truth. We, we can't mess up the doctrine and say, whatever you want to be, you can call yourself a purple penguin, and that's okay. You, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be, no. God says we submit to him. God says he makes the rules, he's in charge. Most people who are caught up in that, I think, are deceived by Satan. Some are in open rebellion against God. They know what God says, and they're just going to rebel against that. But most of them are not. Most of them are confused. They don't know any better because 
Satan has blinded their hearts. And some of the things going on in America don't help. They hurt. So they're not necessarily choosing to rebel against God. The Bible describes them as blinded and confused and under the influence of Satan. What, what about a kid who's confused by same-sex attraction? What does God think about homosexuality? God uses two words that are very strong, perversion, abomination. Both of those are really big, strong words. Honestly, if you've ever seen the Christmas special with Rudolph and the abominable snowman, it makes abomination seem silly. But no, abomination's a really big thing before God. But you know what else is an abomination before God? People who have double standards. That's an abomination before God. And a person who sows discord among brethren. You see, we're, we're sort of tolerant of somebody who spreads gossip. But God finds that just as abominable as somebody who's involved in a same-sex attraction. And by the way, same-sex attraction is not necessarily a sin. Acting on it is a sin. Being tempted to steal something is not necessarily a sin. Satan can put thoughts in your head. Acting on it and actually stealing, that's a sin. Or dwelling on it, thinking about it a lot, that's a sin because you're supposed to bring your thoughts into captivity. So a child who's confused by same-sex attraction, we need to show love and share truth. A, a, A kid who's caught shoplifting, some are intentional. I saw it, I wanted it, I took it. And other kids, you ask them, why'd you take that? And they'll say, I don't know. It was there and my hand did it. And and, and honestly, you know, if you are a person who's prone to shoplifting, let me tell you this, it will never satisfy. If you steal something and take it home and your parents see you with that, they know they didn't buy it for you. They know you didn't. You're busted. You can't enjoy what you stole when, when, uh, a president of a Bible college told Kathy and I once about somebody stole a set of commentaries from the Christian Bible college. You know what you use commentaries for? Studying God's Word so you can teach and preach. How would God bless that Bible study from my stolen commentaries? Unbelievable. But some kids are prone to violence. Some kids are vicious. You ask them, why'd you hurt your sibling. And their answer might be, I don't know, or they made me bad and I just did it. No, is violence okay with God? No. Does God ever want you to respond to somebody viciously? No. Even in self-defense, he doesn't want you to be vicious. So, What you need to realize, they're under the influence of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And we all used to live there. Some kids are prone to lie. Some kids will tell a lie when telling the truth would be easier. It's always easier to tell the truth, by the way. Then you don't have to remember the lie you told. You tell the truth, and even if you get in trouble for it, at least you don't have to remember the lie. It's always easier and always better to tell the truth. But some politicians are prone to lie, right? Acts 23.5 says, you're not supposed to speak evil of a ruler of your people. Even though that ruler of your people might be lying, you're not supposed to speak evil of them. You can share the truth, but you're supposed to share the truth in a way that has 
grace and compassion. Ananias and Caiaphas were the two high priests mentioned in the in the New Testament by name in the yeah, the New Testament mentioned by name. And neither of those guys were spiritual at all. They were both political and manipulative and mean. And yet Paul said, I shouldn't speak evil against the high priest because that's not what God wants. So if you're talking about a politician who's maybe made some evil choices, and sometimes people do that, then you can address their evil choices, but don't attack the person. I realize that's what goes on in politics. You don't, you attack everybody else to make yourself look good. That's not what's supposed to go on in Christianity. Everybody deserves somebody to show love to them just like Jesus would. Show his love. Share his truth. See, when when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he wrote about, don't you understand that the kingdom of God is not for homosexuals and liars and thieves and steal and, and, and not for those people? And then he says, and such were some of you. So you need to show grace to those who have not yet trusted Christ as Savior. So instead of being over here, fussing about them over there, here's what you should do. You should come alongside them. Tell them God loves them. Benjamin and I were in Phoenix at a speaker, a pastor's event, and uh, the speaker said he was talking with somebody who was an active uh, homosexual who argued for homosexual rights, who protested against Christianity, and and this person, and, and the speaker, uh, who is a believer, was talking to this person, and this person was really agitated and aggravated and accusing it. And the speaker said to him, listen, you, you do realize that Jesus Christ loves you? And he died to pay the penalty for your sins? And, and this guy on the other stool, he was amazed. He thought Jesus hated him. Because that's the way believers treated him. This is hard, isn't it? This is a challenge. It's so much easier to smack them or to to pretend they don't exist. The world's not like that. Yes, it is like this. And we have an obligation to show God's love and share His truth because we're supposed to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when you look at the way Jesus treated people in the Gospels, the people who were struggling in their sin, he showed grace and he showed kindness, but he spoke truth. The only people Jesus was harsh with were the religious hypocrites. The people who professed to be believers and thought they knew better. Jesus was harsh with them, but to the average person on this stool, he showed love and he shared truth. And we're called to do exactly the same thing. Father, this is, this is beyond our capacity. We, we can't show love to our enemies. We can't show love to those who hate us 
in our own flesh. Our flesh rebels against that. If somebody attacks us, we want to attack back harder. Make them pay. But, but Father, we're not just flesh. We're also spirit. And, and I know you know that. I'm not telling you anything new. But, but you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, can work inside of us to give us the capacity to do what you want us to do. And so today, in this place, we ask that you would help us to show your love and then share your truth in a way that is gracious and kind. We, we do not compromise the truth, but we show love and grace. And Father, this is hard. There's some people that make this seem almost impossible. But you've never called us to do what's impossible. So I pray that we would do what you have called us to do, that you would give us the power and the capacity to do it well. In Jesus' name, amen.